Companies are started for many reasons. Today, we are in Cambridge, Massachusetts to speak with two innovators that started a company out of their drive to find a major therapy for patients. The catch? They didn't have a lab to call their own, no high-tech equipment. They didn't have funding, but they had an idea. Josh and Justin, welcome. Would you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about why we're here today? Certainly. Um, so I'm Josh Cohen. I'm the co-CEO and co-founder at Amelix. Um, Amelix was founded about seven years ago in a dorm room and, you know, now is in a very, you know, we, we think very exciting spot. So we're very excited to talk to you today and share the story and, and history of Amelix. And hi, I'm Justin Klee. I'm the other co-CEO, co-founder of Amelix. Uh, we're thrilled to be here with you today and share more about our story. I love the story of how you met and uh, how, as students, this became um, probably something you never really thought was possible. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about those early days back in school and how you met and how you found this idea? Yeah, sure. So the idea came around my junior year of college, and it's that you know kind of time of college where you know in a science major, the classes start pointing you towards the literature. And you realize that there's this whole universe of different papers out there that are a Google search away. Um, so I got maybe more interested in that than, than was healthy, but um, you know, ended up reading a bunch of papers and digging into a couple ideas in neuroscience, particularly getting focused on you know, what are the pathways and mechanisms by which you know, a neuron died. I linked up with Justin um, pretty much immediately. Justin was a neuroscience major. I was a biomedical engineer. Maybe I'll let Justin take the story from there. Yeah, well, I think the the both challenge, opportunity, scientific interest uh, in neurodegenerative diseases is just amazing. I mean, it's a there are enormous unmet medical needs. Uh, we really need new treatments. And when Josh came to me and said, "Hey, I think I have a new way of looking at these diseases," uh, I just thought it was so fascinating. At the time, both of us were working in a neuroscience lab at, at Brown, Professor Chris Moore. And so uh, I think the uh, scientific curiosity was, was instantly there. But of course, the question then became, okay, we have an idea, but what do you do next? That is a perfect segue. What do you do next? You're <laughs> juniors in college, uh, probably lots of distractions and other things going on in your lives. And to come find each other and move forward in the way that you did is definitely unique. Um, could you tell us about the steps you took after that initial meeting and having those discussions? Yeah, I think the first thing for us was in um, biotechnology, there's a big premium placed on experience, pedigree, et cetera. And I think part of that is because this is, you know, this is really hard. I mean, there's, there's so many steps that go into developing a drug and you know most of them never make it to the finish line so there's a lot of value placed on you know anything you can possibly do to you know bring down that risk a little so the first thing we did was we just tried to seek people who had been in the field who might be willing to you know dedicate a little time um, to helping us um, we seriously knew nothing you know we had no funding no you know you know, we we seriously kind of knew nothing um, at the outset but a number of people kind of donated time to us and started advising us. And pretty quickly, you know, one of the questions came up, well, you have this cool idea, but you need some data. Um, the question was, how do we get data without a lab? We weren't even aware at the time that this whole kind of world of outsourced uh, development and research um, existed. 
So we actually ended up finding Charles River Labs originally through a Google search. You were doing some research and reading and, and came upon something that struck you. Can you tell us a little bit about the science? Uh, what, what is unique in your theory that you can share? Yeah, I think, especially with the recent focus on genetics, the Human Genome Project, there's been a lot of focus on some gene goes awry, we try to make a drug that targets that. Um, and that's a good approach, and that approach is yielding some really exciting therapies. Our thought was, rather than doing that, we saw kind of an unmet area in focusing on how do neurons actually die? You know, what is the pathway, the mechanism, um, and is there a way that we, in essence, can come up that process so that a neuron survives longer, even in the presence of genetic problems, you know, environmental insults, inflammation, you know, whatever it might be. So we basically dug into those pathways and tried to find drugs that could essentially make a neuron more resilient. And I think something that we thought was really important was there was all this literature building up in Alzheimer's, in ALS, in Parkinson's that by the time a patient actually comes to their doctor's office and says, I have whatever the symptoms are, there's been tremendous neurodegeneration that's been ongoing for quite some time. And so what we thought was all the therapies that were targeting these disease initiation pathways, while very important and promising, might not work by the time a patient came to their doctor's office. So we thought maybe to use a, an analogy, when we see our drug a bit like in oncology, where you have broad-acting chemo or radiation treatments, they work across many different cancers because they target the cells being very highly proliferative. They work in conjunction with now specific or genetically targeted treatments. We see the same thing with neurodegeneration. Perhaps what we first need is a very broad actor, something that broadly, uh, as Josh said, uh, prevents the neurons from dying, and then those will work in conjunction with things that are looking at disease initiation as well as uh, genetically targeted treatments. Interesting. So you're, you're tapping into something that feels like it has some potential, an idea that is supported by some literature. How do you then even begin to think of the next step? Again, you're still students in, in college. Uh, well, so I, I had graduated oh, at this had? point. Okay. Yeah, All right. so, <laughs> so you're, you're well on your way. And uh, how do you even know where to start? How do you think about funding? How do you think about testing your theory? Yeah, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I would say when we started, we were convinced that we were just going to acquire some of the some powder, basically acquire some drug, buy like a Vita capsule machine, put it in capsules, find a hospital, and say like, guys, you want to run a clinical trial? Mm -hmm. They were going to say yes, and then we we would have. How a clinical could they trial. say no? <laughs> right. Um, we I think we learned a lot by testing that idea. So you know, we went and talked to a number of advisors and said. This is what we want to do. And they said, you can't do that because of this, because of this, because of this, et cetera. And we slowly learned from that all the things that we did need to do. And so it was definitely a process of constantly seeking advice. The literal nuts and bolts are we, we realized eventually that you know, we needed a lot more preclinical data. We needed a lot more, you know, both on the efficacy, but also on the you know, safety side of things. We needed to actually manufacture a product professionally, high quality, um, you know, pharmaceuticals are under, you know, intense regulation and, you know, it, for a good reason. And, you know, there was a lot 
we, we really wanted to do and needed to do to kind of actually have a product. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we, really it was kind of a constant process of, of us learning a little and then kind of going around to the, to the community and different advisors and having them poke and reshape, you know, what we were thinking. So as Josh was saying, we have multiple people telling us, well, you need scientific credibility, you need data, uh, it can't just be an idea. And so uh, the question becomes, what do you do? How do you get data when you don't have a lab and you don't have any money? So we took to Google and we found that there's this whole world of contract research organizations where no matter if you're a small company or a huge company, you can work with world experts in running whatever studies you need to run. And so we emailed the form webpage. We were linked up with a, an account manager at, at Charles River and uh, said, here's what we're looking to do. We're, we're uh, targeting neurodegeneration. We want to learn about models. We found some interesting stuff on your website. Where do we go? So she linked us up with the folks in Kuopio, uh, Finland. And all of a sudden, here we were, two young guys with no background, and we were getting to work with PhDs who, who were right out of the University of Eastern Finland, running these experiments for all the biggest companies in the world. And they were willing to run our experiments. So for us, we thought it was the coolest thing in the world. We uh, worked with them to develop what models would make sense, uh, how we could test the idea. Of course, then the question became, well, it's not free. You have to pay for it. <laughs> so they were very kind to us, and they, uh, they maybe gave us the first study discount, or, or I, I'm not sure what they called it, but they were, very, they were very nice to us on that. And we pulled together... Uh, about, I think about $6,000. And uh, we got uh, some support from a, a group at, at Brown. We sort of cobbled it together and we had enough money to run one experiment. Basically, we tried to design the experiment so that it was, it would be pretty definitive. And if our idea had merit, then we'd figure out what to do next and try to raise more money. But we sort of pitched it all in, in that one experiment. So over a couple of weeks, they, they ran the experiment, and it was a pretty severe model of neurodegeneration. So we were hopeful, but realized that we were sort of stacked the cards against us a bit, but that was the purpose of it. Maybe, you know, transition it to Josh. Yeah, sure. So because they were in Finland, um, they always like to do things in the morning, and particularly pretty early in the morning. Um, and I had asked them to send the data literally the moment they had it. And of course, the day we were expecting to get the data, I basically didn't sleep. And I think it ended up coming in at like 4 or 5 a.m. And so, you know, I ended up getting the data. I woke up my, you know, then girlfriend, now fiance. And, you know, she's like, oh, tell me about it in the morning. Like, I don't you know. Like, <laughs> this can't wait. <laughs> uh, I think I called Justin. Um, and it ended up our, you know, our initial experiment was, was quite positive, which really like, you know, it had been, kind of a, I don't want to say like a project, but up until that point, you know, we had cobbled the money together. We had, you know, planned to run this experiment. We had run the experiment, but it, we still weren't sure if this was what we were going to do or if it was going to launch as a company. And it, something about seeing the data and seeing that it was quite positive, 
you kind of looked at it and said, you know, we have to run with this. Like, you know, this can't sit, you know, and, and do nothing. Yeah. And, and the, uh, in the experiment, what we showed, which was, I think, really critical, was we were trying to target neurodegenerative pathways and slow or prevent the neurons from dying. And in the experiment, despite very strong oxidative insults, the neurons survived. They were still healthy. They were still doing everything that they should be. So it was the first time that we had data that said, hey, this might actually work. If we could then eventually bring this to people, then maybe we could have a real treatment here. So the literal experiment, too, we took rat neurons, um, put them in a dish, and exposed them to hydrogen peroxide, which is, you know, you can clean your bathroom with hydrogen peroxide. It literally kills virtually anything. And so we used enough hydrogen peroxide for enough time to kill about half the neurons. And what we wanted to see with our drugs was, could you essentially rescue the neurons? And what we found was that, um, you know, we have a combination therapy of two different molecules. And what we found was that each of the molecules would rescue about a little over 10% of the, uh, of the cells. But the combination at the right ratio and right dose, you got right around 100% of the neurons surviving. So that was kind of the initial data that we looked at and said, you know, we, if our goal is to kind of block this cell death pathway, we might be onto something with this. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.criver.com to listen to Sounds of Science. Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.criver.com. That's incredible. Um, what a wonderful phone call or email that must have been <laughs> from Finland. Uh, that, it sounds like that was a pretty big turning point for you. What yeah. changed after that for you? How did your lives change? How did your business model change? How did the research evolve? I think evolve is the right word. I think while we thought these were amazing results, and we were very fortunate that we had some early uh, advisors who, who also agreed and agreed to help us and advise us further, the truth is that the world didn't know about it. It wasn't published in a journal. We were still pretty much in the same place we were before. And while our $6,000 had been spent very wisely, we now had zero. So we went through another similar process where we went around and talked to anybody who would take a meeting with us and asked, what do you think of the data? The consistent feedback we got from a lot of experts was, this is really promising, but until you show it in vivo, then nobody's going to care that much. They're going to say, well, this is a cellular study, but it's, uh, it's not in vivo. So until you have that, nobody's going to take it seriously. The difficulty we saw was then we would go around, we talked to absolutely everyone, we talked to every head of research at every company we could find, we talked to probably every major pharma company, and we said, well, what do you think of neurodegenerative disease models? At that time, we were primarily focused on Alzheimer's, so we said, what Alzheimer's mouse model would you run? And uh, the consistent feedback we got was, well, none of them translate. 
And we said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, if it works in the mouse, doesn't mean it'll work in people. Lots of stuff have worked in mice and they don't work in people. So, so we said, okay, well, we understand that, but we've also been told that unless we show proof of concept in an animal model, then there's no promise to go to people. And they said, yeah, that's true. So we said, okay, if you had to design the most difficult experiment in an animal model of neurodegeneration that you could, what would it be? How would you run it? And if a drug showed success in it, would you then believe, okay, this has promise? We got the collective wisdom of all the different folks that we could talk to. We came back to the, the folks in uh, Coopio, and of course they were experts in running every type of mouse model uh, experiment in neurodegenerative disease that we could, and designed the experiment. Of course, once again, we came up with, well, we have to, we have to pay for it somehow. Now in vivo models are more expensive than, than <laughs> cellular studies. So yeah. back to you. Yeah. So I'd say, um, you know, that was a, a tough, a tough fundraise because it was kind of another, another level. It, it took a long time. It took us almost a, a year to raise the, the money to run the initial in vivo study. I think a lot of our initial investors were kind of advisor turn investors that, you know, people had been advising us for a number of months. Eventually we said, look, might you consider investing? And, you know, a number of them said yes which basically formed the bulk of, of the funding that went towards the initial mouse study. Um, the initial mouse study, I would say, was, was positive. It wasn't, like, earth-shatteringly positive. You know, there were certain more question mark aspects about it, but also, you know, it was, it was something. But then again, we had designed it to be pretty challenging of a model. Um, and what was funny, which, you know, I think was a big learning experience for us and maybe gets back to your, your question of... Um, how much did the world change after you got that data? We went to all the same people who had told us to run this mouse, told them we had this mouse data, and they said, well, that's great, but a lot of things have worked in mice. And um, you know, how do, we, how do we know if this is going to work in people? But I think it still helped quite a lot. I mean, it was still, we had run a mouse study. There was kind of another, you know, one of our advisors often puts kind of building a company um, as, you know, assembling the building blocks of credibility in the sense of, there's a lot of things you need to put together, and no one of those things means that people are going to take the company seriously or allow you to move forward, but together they do. So it, you know, I think it was one of the kind of critical building blocks along with having good advisors, having a good team, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of one of the blocks we needed to put in place. Yeah, and I'd say too, for, for those who are not starting a company out of a venture fund with tons of funding uh, to give perspective. So you heard our, our first round, I'm using quotes, uh, was 6,000. And our second round, again, with quotes was 125,000. And that was 5,000 from this person and 10,000 from this person. And eventually we got up to, uh, to the 125K. And I think one other thing I'd add too, which was really helpful to us was when we would go share the results with people, we'd get the feedback, oh, well, you ran this in your lab, um, the, these results won't be replicated. And something that we, again, loved about working with the folks in Corpio is we could say, that's not true. The experiments were run with Charles River Labs. 
Most of the people working are either masters or PhDs who specialize in this. Every experiment is videotaped. If you want to watch the videotape, you can watch it for yourself. So I think, again, it gave us a lot of credibility that these were expertly run studies and they were studies the way that any big pharma company would run as well. Interesting. So at this point, you're full-time Amalex. You're, you're all in and you're seeing progressively positive outcomes from your, your studies. Does anything change in your theory or in your approach or is everything pretty much straightforward and as you began yeah. at the very start? Yeah, um, I think a couple things, you know, happened as we kind of kept going. You know, first of all, after the kind of mouse studies, we realized the next real big step would be getting into studying the drug in, in patients. We had also both produced and, you know, the literature had produced as well some data that made us particularly excited about ALS, you know, probably, you know, as a lead indication even before um, Alzheimer's, which we were, you know, had been quite focused on as well. So we, we ended up having to, you know, fund some, you know, much more expensive and larger things, um, including formulating the drug as well as doing toxicology studies, which, you know, are, are necessary but not cheap. They also are the type of thing you really don't want to do wrong. Um, you know, everything done in a toxicology study becomes kind of your record to the FDA. And the FDA is understanding, they're smart, but you don't want to have to explain five pages over here and five pages over there. You kind of want a clean document that goes in, looks professional, meets all the criteria, it was done extremely well. So we, you know, we ended up working with Charles River Labs as well as a couple other tox firms. It took us a, a little longer to raise that money. That was more like two and a half million um, or something like that, which, you know, I think w was a similar process. I mean, it was still kind of the same process of going to different people. Um, I think particularly in that round, we heard a lot more no than yes. Um, we were in a situation where a lot of people kind of call that the valley of death, you know, going from preclinic to clinic, because you're, you're asking people to take the jump of it worked in animal cells, is it going to work in, in patients? Whereas subsequent work is maybe easier to fund and previous work is maybe easier to fund, but getting over that gap was challenging. I'd add too that for, for people starting a company or with an idea thinking about it, Josh and I often find that uh, business stories are told with these very rosy views of, of everything and this went great and this went great. It doesn't. Most, in fact, most of it doesn't. So for the first couple of years while we were running this, while we were all in on Amelix, we certainly didn't have money to, to take salary out of it. So we were working different jobs yeah. or uh, d doing whatever we could to keep the company going. But, but that, that unfortunately couldn't be our, our only thing that we did. Uh, the other thing I'd say is I think many people will tell you you're crazy, you don't know what you're doing, this won't work, and they're probably right. But I think if you have an idea and you really believe in it, you keep going at it. And I think from our perspective and back to your question, every new paper that came out in Alzheimer's, in ALS, we would go back to our mechanism and see, did it still make sense? Could we still per proceed in the same direction? And I think uh, just about every 
thing we found said this is still a good approach. This is this is still uh, worthy of, of pursuit. So I think it's uh, it, now in hindsight. I mean, I think we feel very fortunate, and I think a lot of those experiences teach you a lot. But it's not always easy. It yeah. sounds like it was almost better that you didn't know how challenging it was going to be because you just yeah. went for it. Yeah, yeah, and I would say particularly that this valley of death time, you might call it. To Justin's point, yeah, I, I would not, if I had known that was coming, I, you know, might have might have thought twice a little bit. I mean, as Justin said, we were both working odd jobs on top of Amelix because we weren't drawing a salary. We still needed to pay the bills and and you know keep living and eating and um, you know whatnot. And I would say the other hard thing to Justin's point about that time is it, it it's pretty frustrating, especially you know Justin and I strongly believe this drug needed to go forward to patients. You go through a week of meetings and presentations and whatnot where you just you know you can have a whole week of no and just you feel like you've made no progress in that week despite preparing and thinking about it and agonizing over slides or whatever it might be. So that that was a tough couple of years because it was just pushing ahead while in the background, you know, having no money and, you know, our friends had just graduated college. They're, you know, doing great and like, you know, we're kind of scraping by and getting told their ideas silly from different people. So, you know, but I think what kind of got us through it was we had a number of really good advisors who, you know, at the end of the week, we'd be like, oh, this, you know, this isn't going well. And they'd kind of sit us down and be like, look, it's a good idea. Let me introduce you to this one. There's there's a path forward here. Um, kind of helped us keep going. Excellent. Where Where is the science at now? Where are you in that uh, journey of getting the drug tested and moving forward? We're, we're really excited to get to talk about that. There are obviously many, many steps between where we were and where we are now. But we just got results back from our ALS clinical trial in 137 patients with ALS. And we got the results in December. And we're thrilled that the trial met the primary outcome. Patients on therapy did much better than patients on placebo. There's statistically significant difference. The outcomes I think just about across the board are all supportive of, of the same story that this is a drug that may benefit patients with ALS. And I think something else that we were really proud of is we designed the study so that it was fairly short in duration from a placebo-controlled standpoint, uh, so 24 weeks. After that time, all patients were allowed to enroll in an open-label extension where uh, everyone got drug and could continue as long as they wanted to. That is still ongoing now. So we have uh, people who have been in the trial now for well over two years. So we're really excited. And I think the, the question now is we, we have to meet with the FDA and, and, and hear their thoughts on what the next steps are. But in short, we feel that things have, have continued in, in the right direction, that this is really a, a promising treatment approach for uh, people who really need it. Yeah. and Exciting. Thanks. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. Um, thank you. And just adding to that, I mean, we, we ultimately, getting to the clinical trial, got a lot of support, um, both from, you know, a number of advisors at Mass General and in the ALS community more broadly. 
um, to the ALS philanthropies supported us as well to the point earlier of kind of building blocks of credibility all that kind of coming together helped us tremendously in raising you know more private private money as well so the clinical trial ended up running from basically 2017 to late 2019 um, when we got the data readout which in and of itself is a quite a process and I think we were kind of thrilled to get the positive results but I think the flip side of the coin is you know upon getting those results it's it's a heavy responsibility because you know we now see our job and Amelix's job considering that we believe these results are quite positive we believe it's our responsibility to move this forward as fast efficiently responsibly high quality um, as possible ALS is a disease where patients rapidly lose function ability to move speak um, and it's you know rapidly fatal as well patients don't have time to wait so it's very much on us to get this moving as, as fast as we possibly can how is the company different today than it was when you first came up with it <laughs> I'd say both quite different and I think still largely the same first uh, we're, we're rapidly growing so until March of 2019 so for six years we were uh, three people we are now 13 and uh, we're looking to be a hundred by the end of the year so I think in terms of people uh, the, the company's changed in terms of the size and scope and scale of what we're doing things have changed quite dramatically as well but I think in terms of the scientific idea that started the company I think while we've learned a lot more I think the core principles are there I think something else that we really are trying to keep the same is what got us here in the first place I think our perspectives starting from knowing nothing being incredibly grateful to the people who did take a chance on us and saw potential instead of just a crazy idea and the concept of both challenging the norms of how things are done but keeping steadfast and focused on as Josh said what matters which is helping patients who really need it uh, so I think as we have grown and as we continue to grow uh, that's what Amlix is going to remain. So I'd say that while we are growing, while things are in a very different size, scale, etc., I think fundamentally we, we want to stay as the, the same company we've always been. I love that you mentioned the patients. It really is all about that every day. I'm sure that's a huge factor in every decision you make. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think especially, you know, some of the things that make it real when you talk to some of the doctors or nurses, um, you know, treating patients with ALS, first of all, they're kind of such heroes to kind of every day in and out deal with people who, you know, have just been given a death sentence and are dealing with the implications of that for their family, for them, for themselves, for, you know, things they might have wanted to do and now they can't. So it's, I, I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've had the the, um, you know, we've been grateful to meet a number of uh, patients, doctors, nurses, and, you know, as you meet these people, it's, you know, if we can give them, you know, anything to kind of help in, in everything they're going through, you know, where we really want to do that. And to, to Justin's point as well, we've been fantastically, you know, lucky with the team and people 
we've we've started to assemble at the company. Um, I think we really do try to keep the you know sense of curiosity, the kind of getting the hands dirty sense of you know going out and calling some people up and trying to figure it out when there's a problem that you know maybe you haven't faced before and um, you might have to pull in new resources to to figure out. I think that's that's how we want to want to keep Amelix, and I think on the patient side too, that's something we look for a lot in the candidates we bring in, because you know I think it certainly we feel that way, but we we want um, everybody who comes to work every day to feel that way as well. It's great. It's very clear your determination has been a important factor toward getting you where you are today. Nothing seems to have stood in your way. As you look back into those early days, your younger self. Would you tell yourself anything different or a message for yourself or even for people that might be thinking of kind of going out on a limb like you did? I think many things, but I think the first thing is uh, if you believe in it, keep going. There are a lot of days that are going to feel pretty dark and uh, like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know where to go from here. Uh, I think you'll find it. If you keep pushing, you'll, you'll find which direction to go in. I think the other thing that is just beyond words inspiring is this is a wonderful industry in that if we succeed, then we help people who really need it. And I think that coming to work every day with the singular thought of even this seemingly small or annoying task that I have to do is in service of something so much greater, I think it's, it's just, it's really life-changing. And so I think that for anyone looking to start a company, I would say that if you keep that in mind, if you, uh, I would say, uh, make sure to meet the patients that, that uh, you're, you're looking to serve, the doctors, the caregivers, the nurses, all the people in the community, you'll find your motivation pretty easily. So I'd say keep pushing and remember why you're doing this in the first place. Yeah, and I'd add, um, you know, to kind of lean on the people around you. I mean, I've been extremely lucky with Justin as a co-founder as well as the... Likewise. You know, as well as um, uh, Kent, um, who joined on pretty, pretty quickly in the company and, you know, the larger team we've started to build. And the many advisors, because I think it's it's easy to feel as you're doing this that you're you know doing it alone, and that there's this endless list of tasks and challenges that are insurmountable. But they feel a lot more surmountable, you know, when you have people around you and advisors around you. So I think that's kind of a key thing. And and you know, it, to to the point of kind of it was the first thing we did. And I think in a way to somebody trying to found a company like this, I think the first thing to do surround yourself with good people. Other things will come from that, but it's hard to do anything without that. Excellent. Josh, Justin, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This incredible story from dorm room to saving lives proves that you can achieve what you set your goals to. You just may have to find a creative way to get there. To learn more about Amelix and their mission of improving the lives of patients with neurodegenerative diseases, please visit Amelix.com. You can find the link in our show notes. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience@crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also visit us at criver.com slash vital science podcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. Have a great day.